All right, and it looks like we are live. Sorry, we're a little bit late to the live stream today. Had a couple issues, but we can get started. Um, welcome back, everyone, to This Week in Privacy. Uh, this is episode five of our series where we talk about uh, the latest updates on what we're working on at Privacy Guides, uh, what's going on within the community, and some top news stories in the data privacy and cybersecurity space. Um, just as a reminder, uh, I'm your host, Jonah, and Privacy Guides is a nonprofit which researches and shares privacy related information and facilitates a community on our forum and matrix where people can ask questions and get advice about staying private online and preserving your digital rights. So if you want to get involved, join our forum or join our matrix and say hi. Um, otherwise, we'll move on to updates from our own project this week. Um, just a small update. Uh, we finally figured out uh, the issue that we've been having for a few weeks with crowd-in and translations preventing us from updating our website. Um, no thanks to crowd-in, unfortunately, but we found a workaround that allowed us to publish the latest updates, so we've been sitting on a couple changes for the past few weeks that are finally live. Um, if you've been following this series um, on our blog or this show on YouTube, you probably have already heard about stuff like uBlock Origin Lite and Brave's forgetful browsing feature that we've published more information about on our website. So if you're interested in any of that at all, um, definitely check out the changes. Otherwise, we are back on track to keep moving forward with keeping up with privacy stuff. Um, another small change to our site uh, that I thought I'd mention, uh, we updated our SCIF mail recommendation to reflect that they now support PGP, which is a super cool advancement on their end, I think, because it means that skiff mail um, messages that are sent externally to other providers like ProtonMail, for example, are now going to be pretty seamlessly end-to-end -end encrypted if you enable support for that kind of thing in the app. So it's just a super cool step forward as far as secure email interoperability goes. Um, of course, we typically recommend instant messengers like Signal over email for private and secure uh, communication, so definitely check those out first, but uh, we'll, never <laughs> we'll never be upset about additional security and privacy in email or any other products, so all of that is super cool stuff. Um, but that's pretty much it for Privacy Guides updates, so we'll move on to privacy news here. Um, our first story is kind of a follow-up to the story that we shared last week about China cracking airdrop encryption to track individual airdrop users. Um, CNN here, let me pull this up. CNN reports that Apple has been aware of tracking concerns with AirDrop since at least 2019. Wow, there's a lot of ads on CNN. Oh, there we go. <laughs> uh, CNN says that security researchers warned Apple as early as 2019 about vulnerabilities in its AirDrop wireless sharing function that Chinese authorities claim they recently used to track down users of that feature. Um, a group of Germany-based researchers uh, who first discovered those flaws in 2019, told CNN on Thursday that they had confirmation that Apple received their original report at the time, but the company appears not to have acted on the findings. Um, the same group published a proposed fix for the issue in 2021, but Apple appears not to have implemented it. So pretty big news in the airdrop space. Um, if you're an Apple user, definitely something to be concerned about. Kind of crazy. Um, moving on to our next story. Uh, the Swiss magazine Republic has accused the Swiss government of massive online surveillance of their citizens. Um, so this is according to an article on SwissInfo.ch. Um, they say that the Swiss 
Federal Intelligence Service is allegedly monitoring the digital activities of the Swiss population, particularly on their mobile phones and computers, according to the German-language magazine Republic.ch on Tuesday. What's more, Swiss spies are said to be storing far more information than they promised when the new intelligence law was introduced. The SRC denies these accusations, um, but the Swiss government is allegedly able to access the messages and emails of the population, thanks to the Swiss Federal Intelligence Service, at least according to German-language media Republic.ch. So that is um, quite a bold claim. It's interesting. Um, uh, Swiss privacy laws have been in the news a lot lately, at least in the privacy space, because um, there's a lot of debate about what, what the best jurisdiction is for securing your data, that kind of thing. So this is just an interesting story to come out of that. Um, and if that's something concerned to you, you should definitely look into that further. Um, our next privacy story, uh, a study conducted by Consumer Reports and The Markup indicates that Facebook receives information from thousands of companies about each of its average users. So using a panel of 709 volunteers who shared archives of their Facebook data, Consumer Reports found that a total of 186,892 companies sent data about those users to Facebook. On average, each, each participant in the study had their data sent to, to Facebook by 2,230 companies. That number varied significantly, with some panelist data listing over 7,000 companies providing data about that user. So this is a really interesting case um, that shows how pervasive Facebook's tracking is because it isn't limited to just um, what you do on the Facebook app itself. Facebook actually has this network um, of advertisers and other companies uh, like data brokers that they receive information from um, about each of their users, which is kind of a crazy story. So if you're interested in that, definitely check out this report by Consumer Reports that goes into more detail. Um, but the whole data broker situation is just something that a, a lot of people need to be concerned about even if you are not using Facebook and that kind of thing. Um, and maybe we will publish more on that specific topic in the future. Um, let's see here. Uh, in our next story, um, an update from Brave here. You may or may not have heard of this, depending on whether you use Brave. Um, but in a recent post on their blog, Brave Browser um, says that they're simplifying their fingerprinting protections, removing their strict fingerprinting protection mode from their browser. Um, so Brave says that with desktop and Android version 1.64 in a couple of months, and in today's nightly release for testing, um, which is actually January 18th, that's two days ago, uh, Brave will sunset strict fingerprinting protection mode. This does not affect Brave's industry-leading fingerprinting protection capabilities for users, is what Brave is claiming right now. Instead, it allows them to focus on improving privacy protections in standard mode and avoid web compatibility issues. Um, this is an interesting update because uh, on our site, we currently recommend using the strict fingerprinting protections in Brave um, and a lot of other privacy-centric configuration guides for Brave Browser do as well. So. We're going to be looking into what this change will mean for our guide and recommendations, and we'll release an additional update about this soon. Um, it's gotten mixed feedback from the community. Um, a lot of people are noticing that Brave talked about how fewer than 0.5% of Brave users are using strict fingerprinting protection mode based on their telemetry data, but it's worth noting that a lot of people, especially probably people who are using strict fingerprinting protection, disable that telemetry. Um, it's actually something that we suggest doing in our guide ourselves. So um, it's very likely that the number of people using 
strict fingerprinting protection mode is underreported to Brave, which is kind of an unfortunate side effect of disabling telemetry like this. Um, it's also worth noting that some of the features in the current strict fingerprinting protection mode are coming to the the other modes. Um, they're working on just having like basically two different settings instead of three. Um, so that should at least uh, mean that privacy will be increasing overall by default possibly if some of those fingerprinting protection modes make it over. Um, I haven't seen a full list of what's being removed versus what's being kept and just moved to the other modes, so that's something that we will have an update on in the future, um, but definitely something to keep an eye on if you're a Brave browser user. Um, and in our final privacy story this week, um, and then we'll move on to security after that, um, this probably won't be new news for anyone here, but Google is admitting that uh, they track more about your browsing than some people might think in incognito mode. Um, so this article basically says that Google is rolling out a change to the incognito mode disclaimer of the company's web browser. It admits that it is tracking users even when the mode is active. Um, they settled a $5 billion privacy lawsuit over tracking last December. Um, so you can see now the new disclaimer basically just says uh, this won't change how data is collected by websites you visit and the services they use, including Google, um, which is something that a lot of people knew for sure, but um, a lot of people were definitely also confused about what Incognito Mode did, and the old disclaimer wasn't particularly helpful, so this is definitely a welcome change. Um, if you're looking for a browser that is more focused on privacy and security more than Google Chrome, uh, check out our desktop browser page on Privacy Guys where we talk about um, some alternatives like Firefox and various configuration settings, Brave or Mulvet browser. Uh, moving on to security news, um, really interesting story uh, from Samsung this week. In a first for Qualcomm devices, the Samsung Galaxy S24 is receiving seven years of updates. Um, so Samsung is matching Google's new update plan and offering seven years of security updates and seven generations of OS upgrades. Previously, it gave four years of updates. Um, this is interesting because we generally don't recommend Samsung devices, but this change could have a major impact in the Android hardware space overall. Um, because if we look at other manufacturers like Fairphone, for example, they notably had to resort to an industrial chip in their latest phone just to receive five years of updates from Qualcomm. Um, but Samsung getting Qualcomm to commit to seven could push Qualcomm to update all of their newer devices for much longer than before. Um, so definitely something to keep an eye on. Time will tell whether uh, this level of support is going to be available to companies other than Samsung in the future. I guess we will just see how that goes. But if that changes the update space in Android overall because of Samsung's change here, uh, that would be extremely welcome. Um, in our next security news here, um, Kaspersky released a new tool which analyzes the shutdown.log file on iOS devices to scan for Pegasus malware. Um, so on their secure list blog, Kaspersky says that they've analyzed and confirmed the reliability of detecting a Pegasus malware infection using the shutdown log artifact stored in a system diagnostics archive. The lightweight nature of this method makes it readily available and accessible. Moreover, this log file can store entries for several years, making it a valuable forensic artifact for analyzing and identifying anomalous, uh, uh, anomalous 
log entries. Again, this is not a silver bullet that can detect all malware, they say, and this method relies on the user rebooting the phone as often as possible. Um, so this kind of ties in with our general advice of try and reboot your phone often if you're concerned about malware like this. Um, Kaspersky notes that typical methods of detecting mobile spyware rely on either scanning a full encrypted backup of the device or performing network traffic analysis on the device in question, both of which can be time consuming and difficult, especially if you're not an advanced user who knows how to do that kind of stuff super readily. Um, so we have like a page on our privacy guide site about scanning your device to check the integrity of it, check the integrity of your backups. Um, and there are some uh, graphical tools that can do this kind of thing for you. iMazing is a good one for iOS devices where it's basically a one-click scan, but all of those tools still um, basically take a full backup of your device and scan it, um, which can be a very large backup in some cases. And uh, this tool can basically work on just a select handful of log files that you can export directly from the settings on your device. Um, so it's much more lightweight, it's much more of a faster scan, and it can scan for this kind of stuff. So it should make uh, scanning for this kind of thing a lot easier. Uh, and that is pretty much it for security news. Um, moving on to community stuff, um, not much going on. I'll just remind people really quick that Divest OS, we've covered this um, a couple of times in past episodes, but they are still fundraising until the end of February to try and hit a goal to continue development. And if you haven't Right about that, definitely go check out Divest OS, and if you're able to support them, um, consider doing so. Um, otherwise, not too much. Something I just wanted to cover really briefly. Um, one of our readers noted that there was a creator on YouTube who expressed some confusion about how we make recommendations about tools like VPNs on our site. So uh, I just wanted to kind of briefly cover um, our process and transparency as far as recommendations on the site go in response to that and just have kind of a one-stop shop to address that kind of concern because it's something that comes up a little bit often. Um, so, oops, let me see how I use my trackpad. <laughs> um, I just wanted to go through, there's five like general steps that we take um, every time that we um, consider adding a new product. So the first step is always that new tools and providers are recommended uh, generally by our community at large. Um, sometimes we encounter tools ourselves that we want to check out and add, but most of the time um, we're reviewing suggestions that come from the community. Um, and we have this whole, let's see. Yeah, we have this whole tool suggestions page on our form where all of that stuff is discussed and anyone can add um, a new tool at any time and vote for stuff that they want to see evaluated. So if you're interested in knowing um, which tools get added in the first place, definitely check that out and contribute to the discussions there or vote for things that you want to have reviewed. Um, but a lot of the times people ask us like why we haven't reviewed a certain tool and the answer is usually that um, that tool isn't popular enough or the community didn't care enough about that tool for any specific reason to suggest it in our tool suggestions place. So if there's something that you want to recommend, search our form, see if we've discussed it. And if we haven't, uh, just make a new post and we'll check it out eventually. Um, but this is where you can add and suggest uh, tools that we will cover and then review. Um, when we, when suggestions get added by the community. Um, 
at that point, someone um, in the Privacy Guides team uh, kind of evaluates that suggestion. So um, they'll test out the tool, take notes about how that tool might or might not fit our criteria. And the criteria for each recommendation is going to be separate on um, each uh, for each category, basically. So like VPN services, for example, you can scroll to the bottom, uh, click criteria, and you can see we have a lot on our site about like minimum criteria to qualify and then best case scenarios that'll set like certain providers above and beyond the rest of them. But we have different categories in the case of VPN uh, for what we require. And some categories are more strict than others depending on like how much competition there is, how important that stuff is to your privacy and security, that kind of thing. So VPNs are of course one of the most um, helpful and also most like potentially dangerous tools that you could use. So we have a lot of criteria as far as um, providers that we recommend and uh, and that's why we recommend a very limited number of providers basically. Um, but during that evaluation process, um, that team member shares their notes on the form um, in those threads that I showed you earlier and that team member will mark suggestions as either approved or rejected, which isn't a final approval for a tool necessarily, but if it's marked as approved, that means it's awaiting a pull request on GitHub. So at that point, um, a pull request or a first draft of adding that recommendation is added to the site. Uh, sometimes, I, I mean, somebody typically, not always the, tip, sorry, somebody typically, but not always the team member from the previous step who did the initial evaluation on the form is gonna write a draft recommendation section or page on the website and then submit it to GitHub. Um, and you can see all of the open pull requests that we have here um, for stuff that's been added. We've closed 1,314 pull requests so far, which is kind of a crazy amount, but um, that's just how much we work on this site. Um, but once a pull request is added, which is basically like a first draft, um, two other team members, two team members other than the one who wrote that pull request are gonna perform a final evaluation of the recommendation. Um, so that's the point where those two team members will verify every statement that's been published in that PR, make sure that the tool really does meet all of our criteria and nothing slipped through kind of the preliminary review and perform a final pass through of the draft. Um, and then they indicate whether they approve it or want to see changes or want to deny that tool on GitHub. Um, and through every step of this process, one through four, all of these are open to community feedback as well. So um, while our team members kind of have like the final determination because at some point somebody has to make a decision and in this case, a minimum of two people need to approve it on the team. Um, it's something that we accept and encourage feedback from the community of during every step, whether it's during the forum discussions where community members call out a lot of stuff or um, during the GitHub review process, you could join on GitHub and discuss it. And we try and address every single concern that the community has before finalizing all of this. Um, but once we do finalize it, um, the, the pull request on GitHub gets a minimum of two individual approvals from contributors other than the author. And then the recommendation can go forward and be published on our website. And I'm kind of just covering all of this to demonstrate how this process kind of ensures that the information that we publish on privacyguides.org is as reliable as possible and is published in accordance with all of our various policies. Um, so every team member during like the GitHub stage has the individual ability to block a PR at any time um, with their request for changes note until their concerns are addressed. So there, you can really like 
the whole process can be stopped and we can take more time on it because we really want to make sure that everything that we do add is 100% um, agreed upon and reviewed by all of us working on this by our team members and the community. Um, and both our team members and community contributors, all of us are just volunteers. So that is how all of that gets handled. Um, we have pretty strict conflict of interest policies when it comes to submissions, and we don't make recommendations based on affiliate programs because we don't have affiliate programs at all, um, sponsors or other financial incentives. Um, if a lot of people are already familiar with this, but if you're not, Privacy Guides is a nonprofit organization legally in the United States um, that has a legal obligation to fulfill um, kind of our base mission statement, which is published on Open Collective, but basically it says that the purpose of Privacy Guides is to educate our community on the importance of privacy and government programs internationally um, that are designed to monitor all of your online activities, and we don't operate Privacy Guides for personal profit or anything like that. Um, and any activities outside the scope of that statement are legally um, prohibited, and of course we would never abuse that kind of thing anyways. We are simply focused on pure education and nothing else, basically. And that's what everyone's working on. Um, so kind of a final statement about that. Um, privacy is not like, it's not a zero sum game. You know, there can be a lot of people sharing information and news about privacy and all that's great. And there's so many organizations working on this space and trying to make it better. Um, but there's some people and content creators and other people who see this kind of like independent um, process and reporting and transparency as a threat to their business model because there's a huge um, industry around spreading misinformation about privacy, especially related to VPN providers and that kind of thing. Um, it's something that we covered, uh, something that I covered a few years ago on uh, the Privacy Guides blog I talked about. I posted an article about uh, the problems with like these unbiased VPN reviewers online who participate in a ton of affiliate links and they all generally recommend the same stuff, which typically correlates to how much each provider's affiliate program pays rather than any other facts and that kind of thing. So it's a really interesting blog post from a few years ago, but I think it still holds up. And that's the kind of stuff that we are trying to fight against. So yeah, this was just kind of a, a one-stop place to kind of clarify that whole process as kind of a very broad overview um, because every once in a while, you know, these people like to create drama or speculate or whatever instead of checking their facts. So now it's all presented for you, and we don't have to <laughs> debate each person individually or anything like that, because, well, of course, we don't have time for that at all. But I will say that if anyone has a question about our process, our motivations, what we do, anything like that, um, a question on our form is always going to receive a response, and we get questions about like how this all this works, how people can contribute, that kind of thing, all the time. So if you're interested in contributing to uh, the work that we do, definitely join our forum. That's kind of the main discussion platform for all of this stuff. Um, you can join on GitHub as well if you want to review pull requests, um, if you want to make changes to the site, that kind of thing. Um, and otherwise, uh, it would be great if you wanted to contribute financially on Open Collective or just join any of our communities. Um, kind of spreading this information, following this kind of stuff is pretty beneficial as far as increasing privacy awareness overall. So um, whether that's subscribing to our email mailing list on the blog here or subscribing to any of our social media channels on federated platforms like Mastodon or Lemmy or following on Matrix or just following uh, these updates every week with uh, RSS or whatever, whatever 
you want to do, just making sure you stay informed um, and trying to help others within your community is all great stuff. Um, other than that, that's pretty much all the stuff I wanted to talk about this week. Um, look at our live chat quick. Alex uh, says thank you, and I just want to say you're welcome. That's what we're here for. Um, I'm glad that you find this content interesting. I don't know really how many people actually watch this. I'll have to look at the stats sometime, and hopefully we can get like this podcast uh, published um, as an actual podcast with RSS that we self-host pretty soon. Uh, we're still working on that on the back end. It's taking a little longer than I thought it would to get that ready, but uh, this is also available on PeerTube if you're not a YouTube user, so there's all of those options as well. Otherwise, that's the end of the show. I will see you all next week. Take care, uh, and that's the end.